someone said to me not so long ago, all this offshore wind industry has all been made terribly complicated. And I said, no, it's not been made terribly complicated. It is complicated because it hasn't been made. And that is the reality. We operate within a framework which has just completely evolved rather than one which has been designed. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Dan Monzani, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at Aurora. My guest today was, for the better part of two decades, a senior leader at Siemens, playing a critical role in the innovation and manufacture of key energy technologies, including wind turbine blades and efficient thermal engines. He was, until last year, the CEO of Siemens Engines, and also, from 2016 to 2019, the chair of the Association for Decentralized Energy. Since then, he has been the chief executive of Renewable UK, the industry body representing the industry, with over 400 members who employ more than a quarter of a million people. My guest today is Dan McGrail. Welcome to Energy Unplugged, Dan. Hi, Dan. Good to be with you. I wanted to talk briefly about uh, an area that people might not automatically associate with Renewable UK, which is green hydrogen. But then I think we'll spend a fair bit of time talking about wind and some of the debates around market design towards the end. Does that sound like a a good plan? Yeah, sounds like a plan. Great. I know you've been doing work on uh, green hydrogen, and it's an area we're, we're working on a lot as well uh, in many parts of Europe. So I'd be really interested in your views on how broadly we should define what is green hydrogen. For, for the benefit of listeners who haven't been following the, the quite technical debates in the UK and EU, um, the UK is taking an approach which is technology neutral and defined according to a low carbon standard, whereas the EU seems to be taking a much tighter definition where the electrolyzer has to be powered by dedicated renewables, so not nuclear, uh, and often on site or in quite a sort of tightly defined area. Um, which, which approach do you favour, tightly defined or, or fairly broad? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, clearly, I think if we go back to the beginning of the, the, the story, really, on, on, on hydrogen, um, for us in Renewable UK, clearly we are very interested in the technology from the point of view of integration and 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 clearly the big integration challenge that comes from large-scale renewables so tightly defining it around renewable energy has a has a benefit in link in linking it clearly with the core technology that we represent and the market um, problem that we're going to have to to solve which is ultimately sort of managing that integration process Um, i see benefits in going the other way as well and keeping the, the landscape, you know, f- a little bit further open um, for longer, at least for longer, because, you know, we ultimately what we're driven by is decarbonisation and decarbonisation is going to be predominantly driven by renewables. But clearly, nuclear has a role. And we've seen from the energy security strategy just how much the UK government values the role of nuclear in the system. But even when we look at if we look at future energy scenarios, you know the predominant source of of that of those green electrons is going to be from uh, is going to be from from wind, solar, and you know combination of onshore and offshore wind, with the biggest sort of say the heavy lifting being done by offshore wind. But uh, you know, so really, when it comes to delivering green particles as well as green electrons, I think for me. 
the priority is the is is, dri is driven by decarbonisation rather than being whether it you know whether it comes from wind or one other source. We know that from a cost point of view, the cheapest way of delivering that in the long run will be from renewable energy, um, just simply right. because of the economics of the of the sector. So I don't necessarily feel tremendously threatened from looking at it in a in a, in a wider sense. Um, but clearly, from from our members' point of view, the the, the source of of the energy will be renewable energy in principle. Yeah, and so I suppose that, that begs the second question, which is, do you think getting the green hydrogen industry going or getting the production in the UK going depends on defining these things correctly to get the flow of ESG money in? Or is it just really about getting enough wind on the system so the economics stack up? Or is it about wider policy support for transport and storage? What, what, what do you think is going to really make the difference? I think I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, if, if I look at if you look if I look at the the way the progress has been made in the wind industry, there's clearly a, an element of government leadership in market design and, and stimulating the development of the market. And if I look at offshore wind as a great example of like round one, round two, and round three leasing grounds, I kind of characterise them as sort of demonstration, commercialisation, and industrialisation. So. I think if you just wait until the problem creates itself, which would be when you end up with a, you know, significant surpluses of renewable energy, that would be too late to stimulate the market. And, and I, I think we would see other countries overtake us. And one of the things that's quite clear is when you look into the sort of the demand for green hydrogen from industry and transport in the future, um, even if you look at all of the surplus renewable energy that's expected to happen in Europe in general, we'll still have a demand to import because we are an industri you know, an industrialised economy across Europe. So starting early gives us two advantages. One, that we start to get down the cost reduction trajectory sooner, but also it starts to really stimulate the supply chain. And, and I think that for me, it's one of the really exciting aspects of green hydrogen, which is that, you know, we have our first electrolyzer factories you know in in this country which is fantastic um electrolyzer production for me is in many respects plays right into sort of the industrial sweet spot of britain you know it's kind of automotive in that you know these are modular products customizable um it plays into our process engineering capability uh, chemical engineering capability so when you look at all of those elements of the equation by going early we get to stimulate perhaps the most long-term lucrative aspect of this, which will be to create a supply chain which is indigenous and exporting to other countries. So uh, that's why I think a combination of factors of stimulating demand at the far end, you know, stimulating the business models early, and then, you know, helping the industry develop its supply chain with pipe with a, with a secure pipeline. They're the, the, the re that's the recipe of success that we've seen in other sectors. Yeah, it's a fascinating read across. Shall we turn to, to the wind sector then? Because um, yeah. obviously that's fundamental to, to anything we've just discussed. Um, government targets now 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. On our central case, uh, we expect 33 gigawatts to be built by then. And even that's a tripling of the current operational capacity. So what extra do you think is needed to hit that target? <laughs> so it, it's it, it, it's a huge target. Dan, I mean, let's be let's be honest. It, 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 it's it's an ambition. We um, as an industry, we're all we're all for ambition. Um, and I, I like to say, you know, scaling up is very much in the DNA of the wind industry. We, you know, if, if I look at look at deployment 
a decade ago and then look at a deployment a decade from now, you know, the, the scale up is, is frightening. Um, and and to, so to deliver 50 gigawatts, the first thing I think you have to acknowledge is that it still takes too long to develop a wind farm. And, and the government know this. I mean, we've been working very closely with, with, with ministers, um, including meeting with the prime minister earlier in the year. And, and, and we, you know, he's appointed uh, an offshore wind champion to really get under the skin of how you accelerate this. So um, put, put bluntly, all of the projects that will compete in this year's allocation round or, you know, and we expect the results very soon. Um, all of those projects are on leases which are issued under Gordon Brown. You know, so it, when you when you think about that, it, it, the, the speed of development clearly is, is, is not there. And then the other fact is that you know, the, the last six offshore wind farms o- over the last five years or so to get consent in Britain, all required the Secretary of State to overturn the judgment of the planning inspectorate. So clearly we need a planning framework which is, you know, recognises the overriding public interest of, um, of renewable energy and offshore wind in particular. Um, we need a greater alignment of the regulatory bodies involved um, along the mission of achieving net zero um, and I think one of the realities in the in the world of planning and consenting at the moment is that we you know we have competing objectives. Otherwise, why would we have the outcome that I've just described of, of the planning inspectorate you know seeing things differently from, from from ministers? So there's a clear need for greater alignment, and I would argue that alignment needs to be plugged into net zero. You know, it's not just about one form of renewable energy or the other. It has to be you know we have a mission to get to net zero in a certain amount of time. And many other government agencies need to have that clearly plugged into their to their mission. Um, ne- the sort of the, the next two things I think in terms of delivery are market design, which supports deployment, recognizing that if you want fifty gigawatts, you need to be deploying frequently, and you need to be deploying in a way which recognizes the value, because we have reached the bottom of the cost reduction trajectory really now, or at least for now. Um, so we need to see, um, uh, you know, a market design which which recognises the value that this technology plays in the system, and 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 then fine, and we'll come back and chat about market design, no doubt. But but also we we need to recognise that the supply chain is under huge pressure uh, to deliver these kind of numbers. Not just in the UK, our market doesn't exist in a vacuum. All European governments are stepping up their ambition. They're simplifying their consenting regimes, yet. The supply chain is under huge threat in Europe with, um, with, with, you know, losses or incredibly tight profit margins in general. So we need to make sure that there's enough value in the system for, for, for people to, to thrive and in continue to invest in capacity, which is what is clearly going to be needed to build all these wind turbines. That's great. Thank you for that, Dan. And I think we'll come back to both the market design and some of the supply chain questions in a, in a second. But let's, um, let's stick with the first one of those points you raised around, around planning. Um, because the government also included an ambition to get from four years to one year. I think that four years only represents part of the development cycle you've just described. Do, do you think we can get there with just more efficient coordination or are there some real trade-offs we need to confront? There need to be probably both. Um, I, I think in, in the short term, um, acceleration requires optimization of what's already there the planning regime that's already there um 
and and clearly there's a huge amount of focus on like the, this 2030 number um but the you know we won't all sit back in 2030 and say we've done it we'll have to keep going we talked about hydrogen earlier you know there's going to be a need for us to go beyond the, the expect expected demand you know ccc expect we'll need 100 gigawatts plus of offshore wind by 2050 um to fully electrify the economy or to or to fully decarbonize the economy rather so you know we need to keep building so there's the short-term ambition and what we need to do which is definitely about optimizing the existing regime but i do think there is a, a conversation to be had about a more fundamental reform, um, both in two aspects. One, there's the topic of marine spatial prioritization. I think we have to understand that our seabeds are going to become increasingly crowded um, and there are multiple stakeholders who all have a, an important role to play in the economy, whether that's the fishing industry, whether that's the wind power industry, CCUS, shipping, so on and so forth. Um, and leisure, you know, I mean, we should all, all of these things need to work in harmony. Um, so there's that, that planning aspect, but also then when it comes to licensing and consenting, and, and, and in this regard, I would, you know, I point out that by the middle of the next decade, for sure, we will be right in the thick of repowering or um, even some decommissioning. So the framework within which the existing regulatory environment operates will be a very different one um, when we're building more wind farms, adding in hydrogen into that kind of development process, potentially, um, thinking about um, repowering and decommissioning. This industry is going to create a lot of work for, 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 for a lot of different agencies at the moment, unless we think strategically about how we might want to manage that going forward. That's really interesting. So you're pointing a little bit to institutional reform there to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the... Um... The government's announced it will make the system operator independent. Does that does that get us there, or do you think there's another regulator that picks up some of those broader spatial planning uh, aspects? I, I think I, I, I think it doesn't get us all of the way there. I think you know this okay. system operator is a, is clearly you know one of the things we need to see. For example, is much more coherence between leasing and grid. You know we know we know for example the appetite of uh, the crown estate to continue to 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 offer more leasing rounds in more locations um, and at the moment grid is very much reactive to that and we need to see that being much more integrated and that's just one example um, and, and and you know it, I didn't even mention grid when I was talking about things that need to be done to, to get us to 2030 I mean that was a bit of a miss off me frankly because I, <laughs> I, I, almost, I almost think about that as a kind of condition precedent you know we we, we absolutely have to, to see that re re resolved it, it's a really important um, uh, aspect of this kind of wider coordination that you're going to have to see between what is at the moment several disparate multiple stakeholders. I, I'm not necessarily saying I know what the right answer is here. I think that, but but I think there is a, a, a debate to be had. It's fair to say it's quite seductive the idea of a sort of simplified regulator, um, but it's also potentially disruptive. So um, and and you have to manage that equation one way or the other. So you know I, I think. I, as we go forward, putting that on the table now and discussing it and thinking about it is absolutely the job of us as a trade association, but as policymakers as well, to think about that. So by the time we get to 2030 and beyond, we have a better regime. Someone said to me not so long ago, oh, this offshore wind industry has all been made terribly complicated. 
And I said, no, it, it, it's not been made terribly complicated. It is complicated because it hasn't been made. And, and that is the reality. We operate within a framework which is just completely evolved rather than one which has been designed. Oh, that's a fascinating take. Um, and I think probably has some really cross to, to market design as well, which we'll come to in a minute. But let's, um, let's first talk about the supply chain, which you also um, raised. Um, in, in the short run, there's clearly been a lot of disruption to, to many global supply chains, frankly, not just in energy, uh, first by the pandemic and then um, the effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and wind turbine manufacturers are no exception to that. Uh, to what extent do you think is this, this is a temporary disruption and we should expect ourselves to go back to an equilibrium that we were familiar with before those crises? Or, or are your members starting to look much more fundamentally at the resilience of their supply chains and, and, and trying to change some things in light of those two big disruptive events? Um, I, I, I think first it's right to acknowledge the two disruptive events um, and they are playing a huge part in driving up costs. Um, if over half of a wind turbine's cost build-up is coming from steel, and steel increases by 200%, you can't ignore the impact that that has. Um, I do think there are aspects of this which are temporary, and there are aspects of it that will bake in for the longer term. I, I think history tells us that when you see spikes happen, very rarely do costs come down below where they were previously. And I think the, the lesson learned for many companies will be that the, the, the diversity and the robustness of the supply chain um, that feeds the tier one OEMs in particular, and then the, the downstream sort of tier two and tier three OEMs is something that is, is, is a matter of concern. You throw that into that nickel, aluminium, rarer, you know, all of these aspects are, are, are going to be, you know, important going forward. And the competition for rare earth isn't just going to be one that comes from wind turbines. It's going to be one that comes from EVs and from mobile phones and from everything else. So, you know, I think that this sort of fundamental landscape is, is, is a challenging one and that will therefore translate into something which is, you know, a more conservative pricing approach in the future. But I would come also to the point of um, almost, to, I don't want to say it's market design, but market expectations. You right. know, I remember sitting um, in the headquarters of um, my former employer in 2010 and the company had a strategy called Beat Coal. And it was this, this, um, this idea that in 2010, the only way we could sustain offshore wind is we had to be cheaper than coal. And there was a strategy and a waterfall diagram which identified how you get you know, the cost of an offshore wind kilowatt levelized below 40 euro cents kilowatt hour, right? So, um, sorry, four euro cents kilowatt hour. So, so you know, th this was um, a, a clear, decisive strategy a decade ago. And we achieved it early. You know, it was, it, it, it's, and then that has been driven. And a lot will be said about CFDs driving down the, and auctions driving down the cost. And they have driven down the cost of capital. But the fundamental change has been these quantum leaps in technology from, you know, when I, when I worked on building our uh, Siemens factory in Hull, it was, it, it was to build a six megawatt turbine. That was a quantum leap from 3.6. Now this auction will be competed on 14, 15 megawatt turbines. And that factory only opened six years ago. It's already being expanded. So, you know, we, we are in, in, a, in a situation where quantum leaps have created, I think, a huge pressure on the supply chain. You know, 
quantum leaps mean risk. They mean big R&D budgets. They mean step changes in even things like the vessels need to get bigger to install the turbines. The ports need to get stronger. You know, everything of everything reacts to that top level. So whilst I'm not saying we should slow down innovation, because I think, you know, it is it is important. We ought to recognize now that it's not just about taking cost out because we've got to a point to the long run level uh, of of wholesale prices of electricity, which is that kind of 40 pound a megawatt hour. We're there. So now it's about how do you innovate more on the principle of maybe marginal gains? And that might help the 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 the, the OEMs start to generate more value and make more sustainable profits in the long run. So I, I think that's kind of a, a bit of a, a psychological sh- shift that needs to happen a little bit now. That's really interesting because you, you, you paint a really compelling picture of how it's been technologists driving down the cost more than economists or market designers or, or the effect of competition or whatever. So, so why should we think that's come to an end? Why, why are we at the sort of the limits of how much lower we could go? Why wouldn't it keep going down? Well, I think you could make it keep going down if, okay. if you wanted to. I mean, if you took the next this generation of ter- ter- turbines to 20 megawatts or 25, you could keep going down. But there is a point of which which says, you know, how cheap is cheap enough? And on, on one hand, and then secondly, if you want everything else that comes with an industry, notably a supply chain, skilled workforce, you know, at some point you have to move towards a more sustainable model. Um you know, people figured out how how to make a car go fast. Um, and once you get to a car that goes 150 miles an hour, then is there really a, much benefit in having one that goes 160 miles an hour? Because either way, you're not allowed to. <laughs> so, so so my so, so my point is, um, you know, we're at the point now where we need to, I think, switch to sort of a, a more incremental approach and get and, and really look at how we build our supply chains, make them resilient invest in the skills and the talent, you know, which we're doing anyway, but it's resulting in the tier one OEMs being in real, in real pressure under real pressure. And that trickles down, that trickles down and right the way through the supply chain. So we, you know, I think letting that stabilize a little bit, maybe the quantum leap is another five years from now, maybe another 10. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying, I think we, we now need to bed this industry in and allow it to sort of, to start to generate some value. That's really interesting. And, and having teased market design a, a fair bit, I, I do want to turn to that debate now. Um, and it's quite interesting to put it in the context of really tightly squeezed OEMs. Because um, one of the debates that was uh, that was been raging through the first part of this year was around windfall taxes, first on oil and gas, and then actually potentially to put it on power producers. Now, I suspect I know what you think about this, but let me, <laughs> let me try and frame this in a way. Um, do, do you think there's any legitimacy in the government looking at high returns that some merchant winds uh, operators have uh, achieved and considering a windfall tax in order to uh, help uh, support consumers. Do you think there's any way in which that might help the um, political support for net zero in the long run? Um, I don't think there's a great deal of legitimacy if you believe in markets which have to adapt up and down and adapt to their circumstances and you want entrepreneurs who have ingenuity and and and, and work within the framework within which they're they're asked to work there's no use setting a market design creating that market design advertising it around the world as being you know a, a way of 
de developing a successful market. Um, and then when it works against you momentarily, saying actually we don't like the market design anymore, so we're going to fix it, that has a much more profound impact on investor confidence and long-term financing than pretty much anything else. You know, and and I I, I remember you know, when Spain retrospectively cut the feed-in tariffs um, and the, you know, I worked in Spain for a number of years and, and honestly, the sort of the impact on investor confidence and the distraction that legal battles took place with the government throughout all of that was, was huge. Now, I'm not saying that's what's on offer here, you know, but I do think it does smack of, you know, hindsight. And, and what you're much better doing is looking at, looking forward and saying, right, how do we continually optimize the market? And let's give the government some credit in all of this. They already have, because what they're talking about here is, you know, projects on rocks. Um, and, and, and most of um, let's not forget that majority of wind turbine uh, or wind, wind farm owners are forward trading their power anyway. So the exposure to the sort of the merchant market is nowhere near as severe as some might hypothesize. The other thing is, if you want to do something like this, the complexity of going after wind farm owners with multiple investors in multiple markets, you know, it, it, it's it, it's really, I just think it's complex and just think it's dangerous. Because if you're sitting around the bordering table of a Singaporean investment fund who's all of have someone explaining to them why they're getting taxed in the UK for doing nothing than they've always done, um, it does make you think twice before you go back. Yeah, and I, and I think your point about how far those ripples spread is a really, really important one. It might it might not just be wind investment. It might be the people who are looking to invest in peakers or hydrogen peakers who might have to bet on making losses for two or three years and then making a, a big, um, having a big year when the wind doesn't blow. Um, but if they're taxed on that year, that's a that's a trickier investment. And and there's, you know, there's a philosophical point here, which is, and I, and I don't really know how to frame it, but it's. It feels to me like wind has been the narrative around wind has been we've you know we've got to take the cost down we've got to reduce the cost this is expensive for consumers and unfortunately there are still some people out there who believe that wind is expensive and and the reality is that this you know <laughs> this is in we're in the position where the the next best alternative for generation is twice the price you know renewables. It, it, uh, are you know 40 quid a megawatt hour and then if you want something else if you want gas if you want nuclear then you're gonna have to dig a lot deeper and yeah. i think uh, you know making 10 percent or 20 percent or whatever it really doesn't change the fundamental equation that wind is the best bet for the for, for low cost uh, electrons in this country on, on the flip side i know there are a number of renewables developers who are thinking about delaying the start date of their cfd in order to capture the high merchant prices that are currently available and you know that's in the cfd it's available to them but is it is it a smart move is it how, how's the industry going to justify moving the con moving the period of stability around in order to get as much value from consumers in the short run when when there's a cost of living crisis on I, I, I this is obviously i mean i was hoping you wouldn't ask me about this dan but, um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> And, but generally, it's because I, I see it both ways. You know, I really do. And I think um, I, I think it, it comes back to my point about upsides and downsides. You know, the CFD creates an environment where, you know, the, the more likely than not, you're going to be exposed to downsides. 
but you're not going to be exposed to many upsides. Well, well, you know, that's a that, that's a kind of reality of the framework in which you operate. I think if you look forward, if you look at AR4, um, this year's auction, you know, the reference prices indicate that this type of problem will not replicate itself because, you know, the the, the, the hypothesis is that, you know, the, the, the wholesale market will be way below where it is now within within a few years time. So I think there are very, very short term effects of this. Um, and I think each of an individual business has the, the right to make decisions based on its its circumstances. And and I don't think it's it's it, it's simple enough to say you shouldn't do this or you should, because I think each of those individual businesses has downsides as well as the, the upside of, of this. And and this is the fundamental point are planning to spend billions, I mean, literally billions in this country over the next few years and are spending billions creating jobs, investing in supply chains. And that's what really, that's the fundamental point. You know, if you if you want to attack those companies for making those decisions and undermine the, um, the, the stability of the investment regime, then, you know, they... they they're they're within their rights to ask whether they should be investing as much as they are in this country when they could do it in Germany or in America or you know or anywhere else. Yeah, that's um, that's, a, that's an interesting point, and particularly um, particularly valid when some of the other noises coming out at the moment are about a really fundamental relook at the wholesale market, potentially splitting the market so renewables compete in a completely different parallel market. Um, or, or through some mechanism whereby they'd only receive the average market price rather than the marginal market price. I mean, you, you've sort of said there's there's a bit of change needed for this industry to be sustainable. Do you think we should be looking at more radical solutions like that, or are you more for an incremental build out on the CFD with a, a few a few changes here and there? Um. I think I'm, I'm. I'll say. I'll say from the offset. You know, from my background, I'm not. I'm not a market design expert, but I can. See, you know, from from I, from my seat, I I kind of see it that we rather in the energy industry rather like over engineering our market to, to to sort of to keep it complex. And I used to say in my old job, you know, where there's complexity, there's value, and and that's um that that's absolutely what one of the things that I think keeps the energy industry being complicated. Um, uh, interestingly, the EU Commission are kind of looking at this and recommending incremental change rather than, you know, fundamental change. My view is that the CFD is, is an excellent contract, um, which is administered in a way which is, you know, has has served up to now, but needs to be administered differently in the future. And I think, you know, the country's got new objectives now. So we need to start to value and send signals around those objectives. So, you know, if you want to have more innovation here, if you want to have more sustainability, if you want to have more economic development, these are aspects which you need to factor in um, as, as well as just price. Um, so I see room for evolution of the CFD. Um, when it comes to more radical reform of the market and the effect that that has on consumers. My, my, my bigger point is, is that this is really, should be, a, should be taken on with caution. Um, and if you think about EMR, I mean, I was developing Siemens factory in Hull 
through the sort of the the hard yards of EMR from 2010 to 2014. But 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 EMR really had its form, it, it, its genesis in 2008. You know, under the previous administration. So you know th- this t- this took time and it took six years. And and now talk of you know rather f- more fundamental reform being in you know in an energy bill in October. I mean th- th- this is you know doing something in six months which which previously took six years so my message to policymakers is if we need to go around you know if there is a basis for for more fundamental reform which is there may you know there, there may well be in certain aspects of the market um then it needs to be done with caution incredibly consultative and we need to guard for unintended consequences and even emr had the unintended consequences you know no one expected you know, thousands and thousands of peaking plants to be built when they were designing the EMR, you know, uh, with, with diesel engines and gas engines, you know, and I've, I've worked in that industry, but, you know, it, it's, um, it, it wasn't the planning, you know, no. so you have to recognize that you can, you can end up with outcomes that you didn't plan for if you don't think it through perfectly. And I know you're deeply involved in that, Dan. So it's, you're, you're, yeah, I mean, actually, one of the factors is if you design it well, you end up with outcomes you didn't expect, but actually turn out to be better for the system. So yeah, actually, through yeah, yeah. plants were better suited than CGTs at that time. But if you yeah, yeah. design it badly, you end up with really weird, unintended consequences. Yeah. I want to just ask you one more. I mean, I, you know, we, we've sort of talked about some quite technical areas of market design. It's a really fast evolving area, but one, one more is a. A big issue, and I know a number of your members have strong views on it, which is around locational pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the ESO, the, the, the system operator, has suggested moving from the current system, which is a single wholesale market, but with um, differential costs on where you connect to the network, to splitting the market into dozens of nodes, each with their separate prices. And there's probably a middle option that they've discounted in the middle there of, of having separate price zones, like we do in Italy or, or Sweden. Um, do you think this is something that, albeit with the caveats of taking things carefully and consulting well, government needs to look at because of the importance of sending the signals about flexibility, green hydrogen location, and, and, and so on? Or should we stay well away from this, given the, the challenges of deploying wind? Um, my instinct at this stage is it's the latter. Um, I, you know, I think the... Um, that economically and, and in a model, it will work beautifully. Um, I think in practice, the the notion that you know an industry which has an electricity pr- price of X and then one day has an electricity price of Y could somehow become flexible, you know, is 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 perhaps I think over overestimated, and people will not make. Um, locational decisions about existing infrastructure because of the way the electricity price is evolving and uh, they will be still suffer. People may make locational decisions about future investment and and that's you know that th- that may be appealing but you you know there's more of a th- there's more of a problem perhaps with our installed base than there is with anything else so you know I don't expect refineries and process plants to start to pick up and go somewhere where there's cheap electricity because it's just not not realistic I also think there's a very serious question about how that creates a postcode lottery or an effect on consumers that that they've had no say or no no influence in in, in you know at the end of, at the at the very end of the line um the, the customer is the one that pays for, for for the industry and and ultimately 
I see risk for consumers in, in, in this. But but coming to, to sort of more fundamental, you know, concerns around my industry, you know, we will locate wind farms where it makes sense to locate wind farms. And we will locate solar plants where it makes sense to locate solar plants, so on and so forth. That it was very much the fossil fuel industry thinking through to NUOS, you know, that that does, and you know, having worked in that and developing CCGTs, you see the difference on the business case of going south versus north, et cetera. So you can, you know, that, that does send signals if you can choose where you're locating. Um, but but crucially, if you are in an industry where somebody in the crown estate decides where you're going to locate your wind farm and then puts that up for lease, um, it, you know, when the, the grid infrastructure is kind of out of your hands, um, it, it, it will be a real disincentive. And also the bit that concerns me is that sort of the sense of volatility in it, you know, that it would be much more of a dynamic pricing. And that worries me because, you know, any investment in power generation, and this applies to, 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 to thermal assets as well, you, you know, any kind of investment has to be based on a series of assumptions over a long period of time. And as soon as you put in a variable into that equation, which is highly volatile or perceived to be highly volatile, then you're you know, you, your investor um, or your finance cost will just go up by, you know, basis points and then it will become yeah. more expensive in the end anyway. So I, I, I kind of think there's an element of this over engineering a solution here, which is incredibly complex to administer, to manage and to send signals to, um, to investors, um, which ha has a certain elegance on paper, but isn't necessarily um, brilliant when it comes to trying to finance an investment. Thanks, Dan. Really, um, really interesting argument. Um, I want to wrap up with a couple of uh, broader questions, which we, we, do, we like to do on the podcast. You may have heard them before. They're um, called over or under. So uh, basically, I, I give you two concepts, and they're familiar ones in the energy transition. And you have to, first of all, deduce what you think the consensus view is, and then decide whether you think they are under or overrated. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, there's no right answer. Uh, it's the, it's the, <laughs> you'll be fine. So the first one... The first one is the challenge of integrating wind. Overrated. Oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm going I'm to break with tradition and give you a couple of sentences to explain that one. I think the technology is there and the market and the people who are have the ingenuity to make this happen um, can make it happen. Um, we need speed, speed, speed in the policy. Um, we talked about hydrogen before, but between hydrogen and storage, we have scalable modular technologies which can follow the follow the demand, and um, a hydrogen economy is coming. So that's my great. Um, and then the other one is uh, the need for a diversity of low carbon power sources. So is the diversity over or underrated? Underrated. I think because of the um, variability, I think it's sensible to have a, a sensible to have diversity. And you'd still be in favour of nuclear, CCUS, a variety of renewables. Yeah, as long as wind is the big one. <laughs> I, I think that looks likely on any numbers. <laughs> Dan, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy it. Uh, thank you for coming on Energy Unplugged. Thank you very much indeed, Dan. I really enjoyed it. 
That was Dan Monzani, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at Aurora, talking to Dan McGrail, Chief Executive at Renewable UK. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.